You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Joining us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast is a very special guest. Uh, You know her as an activist, you know her as a New York Times bestselling author, But you also may know her most notably from her husband's work in the United States military as a member of the Navy SEALs. She is Taya Kyle joining us here on the podcast. Chris Kyle, obviously everybody knows his story and it's part of the impetus for the reason of this podcast. But Taya, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, usually we always ask people the first question is, why did you join the military? That's not the case here. I can't ask that to you. And I don't want to start so general as, you know, what is it like being a military wife? But take me back to the beginning of your relationship with Chris and you met a guy who was in the military. Did you have any preconceived notions about the military, about the Navy SEALs, about guys like that? And what were they? Yeah, man, there are so many answers to this question already that I can tell you. But So it's interesting because a lot of times people say you knew what you were getting into when you married him or, and that's not just me, that could be any military spouse or a lot of times even in the teams, a lot of SEALs would say their wives, well, they knew what they were getting into when they married us. And, you know, I'm thinking, no, no, really nobody actually knows that. And even outside of the military, when you get married to somebody, you didn't know what the next 50 years would look like. You didn't know what hits would come your way. I mean, there are people in the military that never go into a combat zone. There are people that do. I mean, life is just life. And your your point about usually you start out with what made you get into the military life to begin with is still kind of interesting because I often say we do a lot of work with our uh, Chris Kyle Frog Foundation with military and first responder marriages. And one of the reasons I'm so passionate about helping those marriages is they did not get married thinking, oh, wow, this is my golden ticket, right? Like This right. would be an easy life. They just loved somebody. And that's that's kind of it. I mean, with Chris, I just loved him. I mean, I, there was no way I wasn't going to be with him no matter what he was doing in life. And he chose to be in the military. But um, I met him really as kind of a an answer to prayer. I mean, I I was not going to a church at the time. I was raised in a church and I had faith, but it wasn't just a huge part of my life. And I wanted to be independent. I didn't want to meet a man. I never wanted to be married. You know, I I had a, a plan for my life. I was pretty sure was on track. I graduated from college in economics and business minor and moved out to Southern California, bought a condo. You know, I was I was on track. And then life just kind of beat me up. And I really felt this overwhelming sense of God telling me, I wasn't meant to go this road alone. And I didn't like that. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed by that because I had my plan and I felt very strong that I was being told to do something else. So I kind of humbled myself and started praying and, and saying, you know, to, I remember the prayer so vividly of saying, I didn't care what person did for a living, which is kind of comical. Uh, I said, I didn't care what they looked like. I didn't care what their age was. I just wanted someone nice. And I asked God to send me, like, just the nicest, purest-hearted person. And when I met Chris, I was in a bar. I mean, I didn't, you know, just to me, there's so many cool things about that where, you know, your prayers are just answered in different places. And without you even knowing, I didn't meet Chris and know that he was the one, but I did know that there was something very different about this guy who was humble. You know, it took me a while to figure out what he did for a living. He gave me some very funny answers. 
before I got to the, the point of him just graduating bud. And, you know, I, I didn't have a super high opinion of somebody that wanted to be a Navy SEAL because I thought they were probably arrogant or self-centered. And I remember him looking at me and saying, I would die for my country. How is that arrogant or self-centered? And he said it in a non-combative way. It was more like a really confused, couldn't even believe that somebody couldn't understand that kind of thinking. And that's how we we started, was just this idealistic, awesome guy in front of me who turned out to truly be, you know, at his core and with me, one of the nicest people I'd ever met. I mean, that wasn't with everybody, but to me, he he was. And so um, we started down that military road. It's interesting. We'll kind of go all over the place here because you bring up so many things that that are worth asking about. But did for Chris, who had such a dangerous job and had to have a instinct, if you will, to eliminate a threat, to put it delicately, to be such this genuine, gentle, nice guy to you, did you ever feel like he was a different person when he wasn't around you? No, because here's what's interesting is that he was one of the things I loved about Chris is that he just was who he was. So, um, when I say nice, I mean it too that when growing up, I hear stories still about him in school. He was a protector. That's who he was. And so when when one of his friends wasn't treated right or somebody didn't do right, he would be the first one to protect them, even so much so that there's a, a kid who was on that senior bench. You know, it was one of those things where in high school it's reserved just for the seniors. And there was a freshman that was sitting on there when no one else was around and he was crying. And Chris was a senior at the time, and he turned around the corner, and he saw the kid, and the kid jumped because he thought, oh, he's going to get his butt kicked for being on the senior bench, you know? And Chris just went and sat down next to him, and the kid was embarrassed, and Chris said, it's okay. I cry sometimes, too. Wow. Like, right? Like, that's Chris's heart. So it comes in this package of he's also the kid I hear stories, you know, in high school, and I'm really good friends with. Um, one of his friends in particular who he grew up with, and he'll tell stories all the time of the pranks they used to play in school, but the teachers loved him because he was respectful. So he he played pranks, and he he colored outside of the lines, and he was a jokester always. But he had a level of respect, sort of his own rule book of, like, right and wrong and what's good and and not good, and, and uh, he lived by those standards. So he was just as kind and soft-hearted as everybody else. I mean, there's a story of one of his friends was telling me that he was in a fight at school with a kid that he said as many times as he could in school, like, I don't want to do this. Like, I'm not here. I don't want to fight you. I just, you just need to stop, right? And um, and the kid, I think he hit him once, and Chris just said, don't do it. Like, don't do not go down this road. And then he hit him again, and he drew blood, and Chris was like, well, all right, after school, right? Right. So then... The story that his friend tells me is, like, this kid shows up to fight. Chris hits him, he goes down, and he says, are we done? And he puts his hand out like, <laughs> out, like, like, I'll pick you up, right? But the kid comes back for more, so Chris pounds him again and says, are we done? Like, you know, that, that to me is like, you know, it took the kid like three or four times before finally he said, okay. And Chris is like, well, let's just let it go, you know? Right. But there's like this, this um line of, I don't need to prove myself to you, but I'm not going to back down. And there's a right and a wrong, and that got us to this place, and I'll handle it if I need to, but I don't have to. Um, there's a, there's another story somebody's telling me in school about, he was sitting at uh, a table, and there were some kids who were 
telling this one kid, giving him a hard time for being a Christian, right? And so Chris walks up with his lunch on his tray, and he hears it, and he sits down there telling this kid to leave the table. And Chris sat down, and he said, I'm a Christian. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Do you? And then all of a sudden, the kid, like, can stay, right? Mm -hmm. And nobody says anything because they know that he's not going to make a big deal about it. But he's also going to stand up for what's right. And he, so that protective part of him was part of what made him awesome in the role that he was in in the military because he said so many times, I'd rather be known for the number of lives that I saved than the lives that I took. I mean, that's something that publishers and movie people and all that, those are titles that grab people's attention. But I think what's so compelling about the book and the movie is that you see behind that is what a lot of our warriors are. Yeah. They're not people that are like bloodthirsty and out to kill. What they are out to do is protect. They're out to fulfill a sense of purpose and and it's part of who they are. So Chris was protective with me. He was kind with me. He stood up for me. He, um, you know, expected me to be strong on my own when he was gone too. And so all those things, I think it was very consistent. He played pranks on me all the time. <laughs> I mean, just who he was was who he was, no matter who he was with. So, yeah, on the battlefield or at home, same guy. But I think I just saw that. To me, that when I say nice, that part of him that I just told you those stories about in high school or um, stories with our neighbors or even getting out of the military when there would be a storm, he would go out looking for people to help. That's, to me, that nice, that answer to prayer that I got. Wow, it's certainly incredible to hear. So go back to when you mentioned, you know, you met him when he graduated BUDS, and for those listening who aren't military, BUDS is the Navy SEAL, you know, pre-training course. Once you graduate BUDS, you can actually start your SEAL training. Um, But when you met him and you found out what he did, and you, I I had some assumptions, I guess, about the nature of the work. Was there ever a point in time when you started dating him and before you got married where you were like, you know, the thought creeps in your head that, he does something really dangerous and there could be a bad ending to this. I mean, did you ever have that fear? Yeah. Like of him dying. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, or something bad happening or, I mean, obviously, you know, when you guys met war had started, like, I mean, you know, you would knew that nine 11, I mean, you met before nine 11, obviously, but it I mean, yeah. it, it, was, it, was it was going just on. Off. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, it's interesting that I asked my dad, I remember, again, we were in an elevator and I, I was really excited about him knowing Chris and I said, so, I mean, what do you think? Like, I know you like him, but, you know, I'm marrying this guy and I just kind of want to know more of what he thought about him, I guess. And he said, I think he's a phenomenal guy. I really like him. And I said, okay, is there anything that, you know, gives you cause for concern? And he said, he said, my only concern is that he's likely going to war. And my experience is war changes people. Yeah. And that was it. And I, but I said, right, like I'm in my 20s and, you know, I said, oh, yeah, okay. Well, I'm not worried at all about that because this guy is consistent. He is who he is no matter what situation he's in his whole life. Like he's, he's not nothing's changing this guy. Right. And so I remember Chris and I talking about that probably within a few months before he was killed. And I said, you know, I remember my dad saying this and, he said, wow, that's pretty insightful. And I was just like, yeah, you know, and just thinking of, so to me that was Chris just admitting, that, yeah, it does change you, you know, but it didn't change his core character, and I don't think it changes people's core character. I think it changes the way we see the world sometimes. I think it 
it can have a, a tendency to rough you up for sure, show you more of what you're made of if you can get through that and how you get through it. And, you know, just, just like a lot of everybody struggles in life. So everybody has those things in life and this is probably just on like a higher volume. Right. You know, it's, just bigger and maybe more intense. Well, to your point, I, th- I think you hit it on the head because I would like to think after my deployments, my core values didn't change. I think that's the big thing. I think when, when people mm-hmm. deploy and they come back and their core values are different, that's where they seem to get off the wrong, tr- you know, get on the wrong track and bad things happen and, you know, uh, dangerous things happen when they get back because the core of who they are was was changed. And in certain cases, it's understandable, right? I mean, right. what people see and go through is, is sometimes just too much for the average person to handle. And so, mm-hmm. but I think that the core values point really holds true. Uh, and for a lot of us, uh, that's something that has to stay consistent. And, and it, I think, as you just, you know, illuminated about the stories about Chris, that those things were consistent with him throughout his entire life. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, sometimes I get, I can be a little bit tough on some of that stuff of like how you let things change you because some people can say, oh, well, you just have to be so mentally tough. And I also think, well, I don't know. I think you have to be unwilling to make excuses also. So yeah, you go through horrible things, but it's your job. It's sort of your duty as a, a, you know, a person to find the the thing that brings you back and you don't give up on that you don't just say oh well that happened and now i'm different so i guess everything is going to suck and everybody around me is going to be miserable and mm-hmm. i'm going to be miserable i mean that's an option certainly people do it but i don't have a lot of compassion for that because i feel like that's a very selfish mentality and i feel like there are so many options available but you have to want them just like i mean there are i I go around the country speaking to people and seeing things and hearing stories that are mind blowing to me, child abuse, domestic violence, horrible things that people have experienced in life. And they don't get to just check. I mean, they can, but, but usually they have to find a way out, right? They have mm-hmm. to find help. There's, there are good people, private organizations that are reaching out to them and helping. There are lots of options that my point with that is that, there are a lot of really horrible things that happen to people in life and sometimes for years and years and years at a time. And there's still a way to get through that. There's still a way to get out of it. It's not easy, but it doesn't have to be the end of your story. I know the movie is the movie and Hollywood does certain things to it. When uh, the movie came out, I immediately picked up the book and read it and it was like a toilet sitting for me. I just buzzed through it because it was such a good read. Because yeah. um, I wanted more of the facts than necessarily what Hollywood would put, portray as the facts. There's a scene there where Chris finds out that they are deploying, 9-11 happens, and it, it, they show it on the day of your wedding as a matter of fact. Uh, I'm just wondering how that actually went because the question I want to know is when you found out Chris was first going to deploy, your initial feeling was what? Yeah, so I knew that he would be at some point and obviously I knew at that point it was not going to be a great time in our world as far as there was war and he was going in it. Um, but I think I always knew that even when I married him that that was a likelihood so they have a wor- the workup and the tr- training that goes on for you know a year and a half before they actually deploy. So we had that time to to get ready for that. And I think it was just I know from the first deployment. I mean, I had major anxiety that I don't think I knew how to put a finger on or to know. I had to get really jumpy in the car. 
like really jumpy. Mm -hmm. And it was weird to me, and I started to learn as the blindness went on that that was just the way it manifested itself. Like that, for whatever reason, was just everything was louder. It seemed like I felt like people were coming into my lane. If Chris was driving, I would jump as a passenger. And I, so I was trying to be cool about him going, but my mind and my heart and my soul were starting to get amped up. And could Chris you know, sense that? that? Could he yeah, sense I think that? He could. I, I think he could, but at that time we didn't know really what it was, right? It was just like, oh, maybe I'm just on edge. But it, it sounds so obvious looking back now, but at the time we were just loving each other and newly married and, you know, get in our house together when he was home or when he wasn't, I was doing it. And uh, we were both working and uh, talking about, I'm going to miss you so much and I love you and are you ready? And, all those things. So I don't think we really knew, but, but that right before he left, I remember his, you know, I, I was trying not to cry because I wanted to be brave. You know, he'd had a phone call with his, his dad and his dad broke down and I knew that was hard because it, understandable, by the way, very understandable. Oh yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, but I, I think for Chris, like I watched that, I was in the room with the phone call and I just know that he took it on, right? So he didn't want to disappoint anybody or have anybody feel worse. His, his core was always to protect and make people better. And so I didn't want to have that weight on him from me. And so we try to just kind of keep it light and and good. But, you know, saying goodbye at, on the tarmac, I noticed, I mean, he started to I mean, he started to cry, right? Like, not bawling, but, like, his eyes were getting ready to get the sunglasses on. You see his nose was getting a little red. And I thought it was weird, right? But I I was just, so I was trying to say, I had had my moments before where I cried. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure of it. I just um, remember this because he, he wasn't somebody who really cried that easily. And so I just hugged him, and I thought I knew. I assumed it was because he was going to war, right? And then it was, I don't know. I found out later after he got back that he was doing that because he thought it might be the last time he'd ever seen me oh because I would leave. Yeah, because it's 97% divorce rate in the teens at the time. Yep. The guys would always say, do not sign over power of attorney to your wife because so many times they'd leave and they come back and the, the wife had cleaned them out of bank accounts, sold the house, done with it. And Chris never did that. He always signed it over to me. He always, you know, he took that leap of faith. I didn't demand it. I said, don't do it then, you know, mm -hmm. but he, but he did. And he trusted me, but I think you can't help but have, be a new person in this environment and have everybody else telling you, there's a good likelihood your marriage is over, dude, you know, just by being here. And uh, so I thought that was pretty, pretty fascinating. I have some of the most amazing love letters from him over deployments that are, just romantic and, and uh, so expressive and just really beautiful. And I always thought I was the luckiest person in the world to have somebody who was just strong, good, faithful, and romantic, truly enjoyed the kids and playing with other people's kids and puppies and gentle with horses. I mean, you know, he hated cats, but he even had <laughs> one cat that I, you know, I mean, I'm not saying he's like, you know, the, but um, but even now, I had a cat I kind of adopted when he was gone on deployment, and I'm super allergic to cats, but this cat would come in our yard, and I would pet it all the time and break out in hives. And it was just kind of comical. 
And, you know, I loved that cat when he came home. He loved that cat, even though you'd always hear him say, I hate cats. But man, this cat would be asleep on his lap while he's petting it and drooling on his lap, you know? Well, it's interesting because... You know, when I went on my first deployment, I, I, both my deployments, I was single. I'm, I'm married now, but I was single from both my deployments. And yeah. I remember very succinctly when my brother broke down, my older brother broke down uh, before I left. And that was very memorable for me. And I, I wonder in your private moments how you handle it. Because I, I, whenever I talk to my parents and my family on the phone while I was deployed, and this was 05 to 06 the first time, you know, they, yeah. they made everything seem as normal as possible. But right. you know, I had to know... I had to, in, in my private moments, I thought, I, I wonder when the phone rings, does my mother jump? You know, when, right. when someone knocks on the door, does, does her heart start to race that it might be something that she doesn't want? How, how was that experience for you? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you say. It's, and by the way, so I don't forget later, I just want to thank you for your service. Oh, too. don't worry. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, you know, when we, when he would leave, I think that one of the biggest things was, I could be a little scatterbrained and I was obsessed about my phone, right? Like always had to have it charged and I was afraid that I would forget to have it charged or forget it in the car or leave it somewhere. I was always leaving it somewhere, but when he was deployed, yeah, it was always on me. And I think it does something to you subconsciously because you know that the reason you have the phone is yes, to get the call from him. But there's another reason why you're desperate about having it. And that's because, you know, you don't know how long you'll go between talks, but, but what if it's that call? We've all heard the story of the one where the guy is dying and he calls home and his wife doesn't get the phone. Like, you know, and she's, she's got a voicemail from her dying husband. That, that's terrifying. So you, you don't want to ever get the call if something's happening. You don't want to miss the call if something's happening. Um, I didn't want to be not available to him. I, I knew his time was precious over there and it would be rare when he could call, so I wanted to... I mean, to the point where if I was in an area with no cell phone signal, I'd drive out to the place where I had it, forward it to a landline, and then make sure I wasn't outside so that there was a landline there, even though he might not call that day. You know, it just, I never wanted to be out of reach for him, I guess. And um, the knock on the door, yeah, I, I eventually got to the point of, there were too many times that I would hear and see things that could have been him on the news or hear from other people that I finally started this way of thinking that stayed with me and even honestly until the day that he he was killed and that was that until it's you it's not you that was my mantra right until it's me it's not me because we went to our friend's funerals I'd watch their wives go through my worst nightmare I'd be there for them the best way they could and it would be easy to all of a sudden have your mind just so living in fear and anxiety that you can't function or that I'm no use to him really, or that I'm a mess. I mean, the movie, you see the dramatic moments in the movie. You hear about some of the dramatic moments or read about them in American Sniper, the book, but that wasn't the majority of our life. We're not those dramatic pay us crying moments, right? Like my role I felt was to lighten the load, to make jokes, to have dark humor, to be a safe place, a soft place, um, a happy place for him. That's what I really tried to be. So one of the ways that I tried to do that was just to say, until it's me, it's not me. And I refuse to believe that it's going to be him until somebody looks me in the eye and says it's him. I'm going to believe that it's not and fine. That's the only way I could do it and be a sort of happy person to be around. 
what were those moments like where you, it consumed you and you just had to break down and cry alone? I mean, how hard was that? Yeah, there was, you know, there were so many nights where I, my faith got so much stronger through Chris's deployments and uh, Chris knew the Bible so much better than I did. I grew up Episcopalian and I knew my hymns and I was even an acolyte, and, but I didn't know the Bible as it related to me today. And so, you know, I, I remember asking him about it and asking him about kind of my fears, and I knew that his belief was always, hey, when it's your time, it's your time, there's nothing you can do about it, which is why he'd run into an alley of bullets flying by his head and um, be not afraid to go in. I mean, if he went out, and I'm, I'm sure you know this mentality too, I mean, in his mind, if he died on the battlefield, it was in a blaze of glory, no better way, no more noble way to go. And so I had that fear, and I just started praying at night. My second deployment, I would sleep with the lights on in my room, and I knew that it did no good, right? Right. But I couldn't turn the lights off, because it was like something tangible to hang on to, and I would pray that God would keep him safe and that he'd be okay, and I would feel this. It's it's weird to explain, but I felt like there would be something in my chest almost that would draw up and out, and it was like a weight kind of feeling, and I would feel like a warmth, and I would ask God to take the fear, and I would feel like I could... I could feel it for a while, like a strength, and then I could feel like I could sleep. And I, I felt like it was a really, a real connection that I was having with God and that I, that he could take that fear from me, and I had to start relying on that more and more, but it wasn't perfected. I mean, I remember one time hearing on the news, this is when I stopped watching the news, was when Chris told me they were going to be training on a helicopter. He rarely said this stuff, right? But he said, oh, we're going to be training on a helicopter, um, uh, stuff out here and I'll call you when we get back. It shouldn't be too late. And usually he couldn't tell me all those details reliably, but if he said it, I trusted it. And so I was watching the news and they said a bunch of spec off guys died in a helicopter crash while they were training right where he was. And they usually called field spec ops, even though that's not what they call themselves. And so I just started getting really busy with work. I worked out of my home office and I was working till probably one in the morning because I couldn't sleep and I didn't want to just break down because I had that mantra, if it's not me, it's not me, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and then he called about one thirty in the morning. I picked up the phone, I heard his voice, and I mean, I lost it. I couldn't even talk. I was sobbing. And so he, not knowing, was like, babe, what's going on? Are you okay? Or, you know, he starts to get scared thinking something's happening on my end and I am barely can get the words out. And I'm like, you're okay, you're okay. So if that helps answer your question, I think, like, I told myself it's okay. I prayed that it'd be okay. I didn't want to have the fear. I found a way to make it through the days, but the the, the reality of it bursted through just hearing his voice that he was okay. You know, I was sobbing or um, knowing that it, it, it lives in there. Um, I had times where I'd cry to my, my friends, you know, and try not to do it for him while he was deployed. I didn't. I didn't want to burden him with that stuff. And that's part of the strain on a military marriage, too, I think, is people and first responder marriages, they want to protect their loved ones, so they don't want to share all the danger they're in. The loved one wants to protect their service member by not sharing how scared they really are and how they really feel. And so you start to isolate yourselves out of love and protection for the other person, but at the same time, you are creating distance, and that's never good in a marriage, so... It just ends up being a dynamic that starts with all the right reasons, but ends up tearing you apart. Yeah, it's just it's perfectly described, um, and and 
you know, it, it's not just marriage, it's families in general. I did the same thing. I mean, I, I was, I never told my family anything that was going on. I know they ask questions. What are you doing? What do you do all day long? And, you know, I say, hey, I yeah. just work, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah. I tried to dull it down as much as possible because you don't want them laying in bed at night worrying about what's going on. Right. What's, what's ironic. And I, I don't know if ironic is the right word, the way you handled the fear. And if I could share a quick story, it's very similar because you know, I, during my first deployment, did a lot of missions. You know, I basically drove like five to 6,000 miles all through the streets of Baghdad and Iraq, and it was the most dangerous place at the time. And yeah. there were mornings I would wake up, and I would just have this sinking feeling in my stomach, like today's the day, something bad's going to happen. We've done this too many times. And, and I didn't know how to handle that fear, and I didn't want my right. soldiers to see it either. And, and right. inevitably, how I would handle it is similar to what you did. I would just walk around to the building in the back by myself, and I would sit there, and yeah. I would just pray, and I would say, look, if today is the day... It's the day. And God, please yep. let me do what I'm trained to do. Let me take care of you know my men and my soldiers and make sure everybody's okay. Yep. And you just you say a prayer and you exhale and you let it go. And then I never thought about it again. I didn't put it yep. in my head because it was the it was the only way I could could reconcile what was about to happen. Uh, and, and fortunately, you know, obviously everything went went the way it was supposed to for me. And it doesn't always happen that way for yep. everybody. But it's just weird how you kind of handle it the same way on the other end of it, on the, on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, that is interesting. It is, it's sort of like this, um, I think some of the lessons that we learn as service members, like you're saying, and as a spouse, and, and Chris would have reflected a lot of what you're saying too, is that you have to acknowledge that it lives there, right? That it, that what, I mean, you're not an idiot. So you have this logical, academic understanding of what is out there and what could happen. You can't ignore that and say it doesn't exist. So you know you are potentially going out to die. Or from my end, he's potentially going to a situation where he could die. And so all you can do is say, I'm going to do it one way or the other. So what am I going to do? I'm going to pray. I'm going to give it to God. And then I'm going to clear my head or else nobody's effective. And so, you know, that's the power of it. And I think it's a great walk in faith because even like you said, you know, some people ask me, well, how do you reconcile then? I mean, it almost could sound like from somebody who didn't, um, who doesn't understand fully, and I'm about to explain it a little bit, so they do understand it fully, but I get this question a lot of, well, you say, you know, you're prayerful and you're faithful, and yet something bad did happen, or what happens to the guys that did die on the battlefield? Were they not protected and loved and all that? And I, I think the real answer for me has been that, no, look, the God I believe in promises us all free will. That's for people who do good and for people who do evil. We all have it. So evil exists. It has since the beginning of time. We're not getting rid of it. Evil exists, and people will get hurt, and they will suffer because of evil. And you all were out there fighting evil and, you know, uh, landmines and different things that were out there from terrorists. They're, they're sent to exact evil on somebody else, and they want you out so they can do more evil to the people who live there, the civilians. So that's all evil out there. And it's going to get some people, but God also promises to bring beauty through the ashes of your life. And so through that struggle and that strife, you have the opportunity to find a different kind of strength and a different kind of beauty from other people. So the stories of the brotherhood, and and you, I'm sure, have many, and certainly with the podcast that you do, you hear more, that you see God through these moments more than you would in other places. I know you had Senator Brian Birdwell on and moments of divinity and divine intervention that, yes, evil struck, and yes, he got hurt, but he also saw God more clearly than most people ever will in the midst of that, saving him and completing him and making his soul stronger so that 
you know, your, your experience was good. You got stronger. You found the power of God in taking the fear from you. And I got that too. I also saw that with free will, somebody still can kill my husband and God cannot intervene if he's going to keep his promise of free will. But what he can do is carry me through that and show me a different side of him and show me that evil never wins, right? It exists and it's going to put the hurt on us, but it never is bigger than the good that God can bring through it, even if it's not the way I wanted it to be. And even if it's not, you know, I've, I think that's why we're not given a choice. I would, I would trade every good thing and every strength and every beautiful thing and even every divine moment that I've seen because I already had my faith. I'd trade it all if I could have Chris back. But we don't get the choice and I'd be a fool to ignore the things that I've seen even in the midst of tragedy, if that makes sense. I might be talking in circles. No, point, not at all. I, I mean, listen, it's, it's eloquently said and, and I think... Uh, faith is an individual thing for everybody, and I, I mm-hmm. think that what you what you illustrate to life is how you use your faith to to get you through your tough moments. And I, I think you did it eloquently, and you did it a, a justice for everybody. So thank you for for your thoughts. Let's go back to kind of the deployment cycle of of your marriage. If I'm correct, your first deployment, you did not have any children. Your second one, correct, Chris. You guys had already had your first child by the time Chris went the second time, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, right. so how much harder was the second deployment, not only because it's like, here we go again, but, oh, here we go again, and I've got a small child at home? Yeah, you know, it's just different. I, I was talking about this to somebody uh, yesterday, and I was talking about how I think part of what makes this service life and service marriages different, and, and family life, like you said, is that life is always changing. So you, it's not like you can say, okay, I've done a deployment, I know how to do it, now I'll be able to do the next one, and pretty soon I'll be able to do it so well that it doesn't matter. You know, it's like old hat. It never is like that because life changes. So, yeah, the first one I didn't have kids working full-time. second one I was on maternity leave. I had just given birth 10 days before Chris left, and so that was a whole different dynamic, and I had this beautiful new life to take care of, and also, the, you know, it's hard and different and adjusting and sending him pictures and him missing out on it and and hearing that I mean there were there was a time that was the deployment where he called and he was told that he had tuberculosis but he was also told that he would die from it and that's mind-boggling to me how that whole thing rolled out but they were telling him about this, the way he was gonna die you know kind of choking his lungs and sleep and all this stuff and I was thinking what in the heck are they telling you and um, and he was saying that you know I'd rather go out on the battlefield. And I said, well, of course, you know, I understand that. But we we went to talking a little bit more about death, and he said, you know, and mind you, I've got my son, you know, with me who at the time was I think seven months, and he said, I just I see people die all the time, and I just you'll be okay. And I said, I won't be okay. And he said, No, you will because people die and, and life continues and you'll find someone else to love and he'll find that you'll, you can get him another father. That's just the way this works. And I was like, are you kidding me? Oh, wow. Yeah, I was, <laughs> you know, I was so affronted and upset and still trying to understand him. And I do know what he means about, or what he meant at the time. When you see people die all the time and the war still goes on, the world keeps turning People keep going, right? It seems like it can happen, and somehow it's all okay. And maybe he needed to know 
in his mind that we would be okay because I always felt like if you go, you take us with you. That's it. I'm not the same anymore, and he's not going to be okay either. So it is you, and there's nobody that steps in and takes your place. And I, I, that's the way it is today. I mean, I'm you know, a little over four years out, and I still feel that way. It's, it's no, it's, it, you don't just, I mean, some people, I've, and, I, and God bless them, that's a whole other topic, but it is not an easy road always for people who find somebody else and, and move forward, and they have to try to defend that they love their spouse who died, and that's unfortunate because I've seen it happen enough where life rolls out and somebody new comes in and they find a way to love and support each other and go through it, and the new person, uh, man, they have to be strong to say that their spouse will always love someone else. You know, they that, that love doesn't die, but they're opening their world to the new person coming in to help raise their kids or be a part of their family or have more kids with or whatever that is. So I can see both sides of the coin, like how Chris could say, you'll be okay, and maybe he needed to know that we'd be okay. But also me saying, I will not be okay ever again. And I still, you know, I still kind of believe that. I mean, I, am I okay? Yeah. Do I carry on with my life? Absolutely. Do I try to make my home super happy for my kids and laugh and not rob them of, you know, um, the joy that they I think need to have, but also deserve to have and, and all that. But it's not that I'm ever okay. It's not okay. Do you so, think, do you think he did that as a defense mechanism? Like, cause I can imagine how off putting it would have been. Like when you tell the story, I was almost offended yeah. for you, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, yeah. was it a defense mechanism for him? I think so. I think it was a defense mechanism and I think it was him. Look, he was pretty upset when he called me. It was clear he didn't want to die, and he sure as hell didn't want to die because of some damn, you know, TB uh, that he contracted from a terrorist. You know what I mean? It, that that was like, you know, they're coughing on you, and you get... And, and by the way, it turned out to be a false positive. Oh, he never God. had it. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, um, and, you know, he found that out fairly quickly after our phone conversation. Um, but I think that... For him, and I, and I imagine what it's like, and I feel this, okay, I feel sort of the same way too, and I was talking to a widow the other day who's actually a friend of mine, and her husband was a police officer. He, he dropped out of a heart attack, of all things, you know, and he's 50 years old, and she said, you know, I just have a different perspective on things now. I think when somebody says somebody died or a dog died or whatever, where you feel like, oh, that must have been so horrible, I just think, yeah, yeah, people die. Yep, every day, all the time. And you know what? You just have to kind of get tough to it because people die. And I think, you know, and I, and I understood exactly what she was saying, right? Because she's saying, I used to be afraid of it, but I've experienced it. And it is. It's horrible. It's changed everything, and I'm still not okay. But I also realized, like, this happens all the time in everyone's life. You know, every minute of every day, I'm sure there's higher numbers than even every minute. Somebody's dying. And so we can – so I think for Chris to see so much death – and the world still continue. I used to go back from, you know, it was, it was really clear in his mind. I used to go back from funerals of our friends and watch their widow living out my worst nightmare. And I would, I, at the time I had young kids, I'm thinking specifically of one where I had both kids at the time and I had my daughter in the car and I had to get groceries on the way home. And I thought it was so unfair and so just wrong that the world was still going, that the grocery store was still open, that I was still going to get groceries when I felt like 
the world should be stopping for a minute. Like her world is over. She knows she's devastated. His life is over. Everybody needs to stop for a minute and take this in and, and love on them and let their world stop for a minute. But I was very aware of the fact that life doesn't stop for any of us when we lose someone. And so I think in some ways I could relate to what he was saying too. Um, that was earlier on before we, our friends started dying. It was just, right. You know, but, um, I have compassion for what he was saying because he was just being realistic, I think, and analytical and absorbing what he was seeing in front of him, which is that it, it goes on. And I've, and I've heard, he's probably heard many stories, right? Of right. Well, and that sometimes that, that analytical, very matter of fact, data point approach is, is a way to handle it just because the emotion becomes too much. So you flip the script right. and you go right to the other side and just say, look, this is a matter of fact deal. This is what it is. Life's going to go on and let's just move forward. And, and I, I just, to me, it sounded like a defense mechanism. I know I've felt that before about certain things, but yeah. I, I can't, you know, the emotion That's- sometimes gets too much. You said it, I think you said it the best way possible, and I also think to do, and you can attest to this, but I think in order to do your job effectively over there, you can't be worried that if something happens to you, your wife and son will never be okay. Yeah. Because then how can you run into an alleyway to save somebody else, right? How can you run into a gunfight if you're thinking, wait a minute, they're going to be ruined. Who am I going to protect, them or the soldiers on the ground like it can't be that choice it has to be you're going to protect people in front of you so i think you are right it's a defense mechanism to say you'll be okay tell me you'll be okay almost yeah but i didn't tell him i'd be okay so there you go <laughs> i wasn't a very good spouse at the time i was like no, hey you, <laughs> i won't be okay yeah i'm sure i'm sure he, he everything went the way it was supposed to emotionally for him let yeah. me ask you because the book does a fantastic job and one of my favorite parts about the book was reading the ex- excerpts from you reading your thoughts and your reactions to things because it really kind of carved out the whole story emotionally. And there's, there was a point in the book where you kind of got to a breaking point and said, look, this is enough. Like th- these deployments are, are affecting you. They're affecting our life, our kids, your relationship with them. Talk to me about that emotion and, and when it started and how it came to fruition. Yeah, so it's interesting because about um, it was probably the might have been before the third deployment and it was wearing on us and I could tell it was, it was, there was a lot on him because as you know, it's never just the two deployments, right? There's right. always stuff going on, um, more than that. And, and so, you know, I was saying, I remember him saying, if you don't want me to re up, you know, reenlist, you know, you got to tell me because it's, it's time. And I remember saying, I can't do that because if I do that, I'm telling you to not live your dream and I don't think you'll ever, I think you'd resent me and I don't think that I can live with myself for doing that either. So I can't tell you, you have to make a decision. You know, it's hard. And I, I mean, I'm not proud of it, but I remember feeling like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to love him the same way because I would know that I wasn't first, even though he would tell me and write me these beautiful letters and be so romantic and tell me how I was first. Right. I thought, well, I can't be if you would risk your life do that then I can't be and I wish to God I understood then what I understand now but I have to try to give myself some grace sometimes too and say I was growing and learning and in a situation I didn't know about which is part of the reason why I also have this foundation is to help other people you know give them the information I wish I would have had which is that both worlds exist simultaneously and they both are equally as important and there isn't it isn't just that clear of a choice 
and it isn't one over the other. They're just a sense of purpose, that a sense of duty that you feel you need to fulfill. And, that, and I also think there's a strong drive from God calling people to a certain place, and they can't necessarily explain it, but they have to honor it if they're going to be a whole person. And, um, and he wanted to honor both. He wanted both. And it wasn't for selfish reasons. So that whole dynamic started, you know, probably somewhere between second and third deployments. And, and then the third deployment, you know, they're not supposed to do two, more than two back-to-back combat deployments in a row without having a mandatory break. But they kept breaking that rule with him. And, and one of the guys, I remember he was a, a master chief who had never seen combat and he was attached to the SEAL teams, but he wasn't a SEAL. And he got to make the decision and he said it's just needs of the Navy. Needs of the Navy come before everything else, including the rules that we make for ourselves kind of thing. So he kept sending him back. And so then it got to the point where I said to Chris, you know, can we do something else? Could you be deployed overseas maybe? You know, could we get a station in Europe? Could you – people wanted him to kind of go officer or, or do different things. Could he do that? Was there something he could do that would be different than what he was doing boots on the ground? And he said, I, No. This is all. This is the reason I'm here is to do this. If it's not this, I'm not really interested. And so I accepted that, and then I started praying that. And, and to me, this was a big moment for me in my faith. My, I started praying not for the outcome because I sort of believe that praying for outcomes is selfish and it's not faithful enough. But praying, I said, you know, please do whatever is best for our family in the long run. And I kind of gave it to God, and I said, lead Chris to whatever is best for us as a family and whatever that is, I'll accept it. And I admitted, I don't want it to be that he reenlists again, but if it is, I'll trust that that is in fact the best for our family, even though I can't see how that could be. And, you know, he did. And, and that was a big step for me to say, okay, I prayed about it and I believe that it is the best for our family. And I believe this is the way it's supposed to go. And then I watched the, uh, you know, Chris had a couple of knee surgeries a lot of people don't know how um, much disabled he really was from a number of things, you know, tinnitus, floaters in his eye, broken bones, knee surgeries, back issues. There was just a lot. He was physically beaten down emotionally and mentally. It had taken its toll, and we're learning more about stuff that I had no idea about back then, but adrenal fatigue is really common in warriors mm-hmm. and their spouses. It changes the chemicals of your body. You know, it... Um, makes you less resistant to disease. There's all kinds of stuff. So <laughs> adrenal fatigue, you know, your body stops producing the chemicals that it doesn't think it needs. If it's in a fight or flight mode, it doesn't need your happy chemicals. It doesn't need dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, all that. So it just stops kind of making them. And so you end up getting into a place of your body isn't, isn't producing what you need because it's been in such a fight or flight mode for so long that it's adjusted and it only gives you adrenaline and cortisol and those chemicals, which don't work very well in a peaceful home environment. Yeah. So, you know, we just, um, so I just saw that and eventually it got to the point and I told him, this was my way, I guess, of saying I didn't give him an ultimatum. And Chris and I had many conversations about that. But I, I said, if you need to do it again, and this was now in 2009, you know, after the fourth one, I said, if you're going to do it again, then I just think that I might as well move to Oregon and be with my parents and we'll still be married and you can still come see us. You'll probably see us as often up there as you do here because the Navy will never stop. They have never kept their word to you. And and it's not to say his officers in his platoon were great. Some of his commanding officers were great. 
but the Navy as a general rule, they weren't going to keep any promises that they made. And I saw that time and time and time and time and time again. Another reason why I have the foundation um, for marriages, because that's pretty common in service jobs is that the organization doesn't value the family. And you start to, as a family member, think that your loved one doesn't value you. But it's not that. They're answering to a, an organization who won't allow them to plan or make time for or assure you that you'll have your birthday off or whatever, right? So anyway, we, um, and Chris very wisely, you know, said that's never, that's not going to work and our marriage won't make it. And I said, well, I think, I think it will. It's not going to be great, but it is, you know, I can only, I want you to take care of you, but who's here to take care of me? Because if you're not, then I have to take care of the kids in me. And so this is the only way I know how to do it because it's not okay here anymore. And so he, you know, he went on to say and, and continued to say, I mean, we had conversations as American Sniper came out that I gave him an ultimatum. And I guess when I didn't, I purposely didn't. But at the same time, I guess it kind of is. I mean, really. It's Any married guy knows magic. what's an ultimatum and what isn't. <laughs> it's part <Right>? of marriage. <laughs> you don't yeah. have to say it for it to be it, but we understand. <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, so I guess, you know, here I thought I was cleverly finding an option that would maybe barely work but still work to give myself that piece of saying I didn't give an ultimatum. But you're right. He knew, it, you know, it's not going to work. And so he got out and he made that choice. And, and I still maintain that... It, it's hard for me when people know that story, and it was hard for me when American Sniper's book came out because there's so much of Chris and I that was love and light and laughter and making jokes about things, and and I felt like I did such, um, or at least I tried really hard to make it a really fun life for us, even in the midst of all this heaviness. And yet, the parts that people know are these parts of like trouble and and dramatic times, and so it was hard for me to say I'm the one that made him get out. Because at the time, I truly, truly felt, Mark, that he needed saving. And the military was not going to save him. They were going to continue to burn him up. And they weren't doing what they were supposed to do and what they did do for every other warrior. They didn't do it for him. And so I, I did do that, but it wasn't just selfish. It was also for him because I saw there wasn't going to be much left of him. And I did have some commanding officers come to me. After what was it, after the book came out or after Chris died, I'm not sure which, but I have more than one of them say, but one in particular that I remember having a conversation with, and he said, I'm sorry. I feel like we really let him down, and I, it's hard for me to live with that because I think we did let him down, and he deserved better, wow. and we should have fought for him. Did that make you feel good? Um, It made me feel, yeah. You know what it did? I think it... I guess it wouldn't say good. I guess what it was, it was more like a, at that point I had already really been pretty solid in how I saw it. But I think to know that somebody else saw it was validating. Right. To know that it wasn't just me being a woman or a wife or, you know, that somebody else could see that it really, he really did need somebody to stand for him. And he would not have ever been able to quit on his own or walk away on his own. He wouldn't have. He would have, he would have killed himself doing it. And so, you know, I didn't need anybody else to know that maybe but Chris, and I think he did know that, mm -hmm. but it was still validating to hear somebody else say it. Was the, Obviously, I assume there's a huge sense of relief when he decided to end his career in the Navy. Yeah, I mean, there, and 
yeah, I was, I was relieved and a little nervous, you know, about the next step, but I really, and this is also another thing that, man, if I had only known, right. Um, I thought, Oh man, when he's not devoid or in training, when he's home, we have such a good time together. And when we go on vacation, we have such a good time together or just, I shouldn't say vacation. We didn't get a lot of those, but I mean, uh, time off when he had time off and was home we would have such a great time together that I thought, well, when he's out of the Navy, we're going to have such a great time together, right? Like, this is, why should it be any different? And I did not account for the huge adjustment for him in getting out of the military. I had no idea yeah. what that would do to him. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny, the transition back to civilian life, and I've talked about this a lot in the podcast, when I look back on it, deployments are almost easier for me as an individual. Because, like, I only yeah. have one task to focus on, stay alive. And right. in, in the grand scheme of things, that's really simple. I don't have to worry about right. kids, I don't have to worry about wife, I don't have to worry about bills, I don't have to worry about any of those everyday things that just drive people sometimes insane. All I gotta do is stay alive. Right. And, and I have full control over that for the most part, we feel like at least. But when you make right, that right. transition back... It's it sometimes you get bogged down on such little things and you can lose sight of the big picture that it makes transition so much more difficult. It is. And, you know, there's even the, even like going into a, a work environment. I mean, one of the things that Chris loved about being in the teams and is that like if, if one of the guys, you know, at work was acting a fool or pissing you off or whatever, you, you literally could punch them in the face and they could punch you back and you could get up and hug it out and you would take a bullet for him tomorrow. Right? Like that's problems were pretty well just solved. They weren't like these undercurrents of pettiness. Yes. These dynamics of talking it out and things were not quite right or not just and it was confusing or people are ripping you off and you're pretty sure they are, but you don't know it and you don't feel prepared. Whereas, as, as to how to fight it. Whereas, like you said, when you're in war, you know how to fight. What, I mean, you're going to have surprises in the fight, but you've trained for it. Like, you know there's a fight in front of you, and you go and you fight it. These other kind of things that are behind your back and betrayals and weird stuff and and pettiness, especially pettiness when you're going, you people have no idea what a real problem is. Yes, I've exactly. been in Iraq, and I've yeah. seen how they live. That's a real problem, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Just different. So I understand it better now. I just didn't understand it at the time. I know this is a really tough question to ask, um, or at least answer, I should say. What do you regret about the way you handled being a military wife? Ooh, yeah. Well, um, again, that's really the reason why I have the Chris Kyle Frog Foundation is to help other people not have to, to have these feelings. But there, there have been a few, and I think the biggest one for me was that I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't understand. And I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. So for me, um, I think that, I think that would be one of my regrets, but I don't know how I could have changed anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, but, but that was one of them is that I wish I could have known something so that I could have, um, I don't know, I guess what would it have done? I guess it just, I think, I don't know. Okay, Mark, I'm going to go. There's two ways I handle this. Because on the one hand, I think if I had known, and on the other hand, I think sometimes I think it served Chris well that I was like, well, we're here now. So what are we going to do now? Right? Like, how are we going to get to where we need to get today and right now? In some ways, that might have been helpful versus if I had known enough to come in and say, this is horrible. I don't know how to get out of it. I don't know. Um, so the other thing is that when he was hurting or upset or angry, 
I understand it now for a lot of different reasons that really my own grief taught me and my own pain taught me of how I handled things at home and how it was hard for me at home because I was carrying this other load of, you know, crap. And I didn't know at the time how hard that was for Chris to do both. And he did things really, really well. Um, but I didn't understand how difficult it was for him. I didn't understand, like, for drinking, for example. When he would drink, I didn't, I didn't want him to be drinking, right? And I, there was a difference. I don't, I'd like to say I didn't really nag, but there were times where I said, like, you got to stop, right? Mm-hmm. But in the middle of my horrible grief and lawsuits and battles and fights, I started smoking cigarettes. And people could tell me all day long it wasn't healthy and it wasn't right, and I wanted to punch them in their face. Like, I know it's not, but I need something to give me, like, a outlet. minute out of this. Yeah. 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 Right? And I'm not smoking anymore, and I think Chris would have gotten, well, and he did. He slowed down on the drinking and whatever, but um, I think if I had understood those dynamics, I wish I could have been more compassionate about him, I guess. And And then the last thing is just those moments where he was frustrated or angry, and I... I think what I could have seen is that's actually hurt and he needs to feel more loved. And I think as a person, you know, I would feel like, well, if you're angry with me, then I feel defensive instead of you're angry. And I bet that means you probably need more love. Like something isn't, you're not feeling totally loved right now. And I wish I would have known that a little bit more and known how to come in. Um, And I, I think I did it sometimes, but not, not all the time. And the way I handle my regrets is I've had many a time where I've just broken down and been sobbing about, I think that's the hardest thing to live with uh, is regret. But um, two things. One is because I knew he could always die, I think I did a really good job of living a life that I wouldn't have to regret. So I tried harder and I worked harder at my marriage and my relationship with him because I never wanted it be that he died and I'd look back and regret that I was not fair or I wasn't right. So I tried really, really hard, but I still made mistakes. So when I have my sobbing moments is because I just didn't do enough. And then I think, and I almost get this picture of him next to me and he used to just break me because it would like wash over me. And I don't know if that's him or if that's God, but when I'd have those moments of just break down sobbing, I wish I could have done it better for you. I'd have a vision of him sitting next to me saying, you don't think I wish I could have? done things better tell you. right so i'm like okay then you know it's just being human it just sucks sometimes you know i'd love to be perfect but I'm just human i'm sure he had them too and he, well, that's just you are you're just your, your courage and strength are amazing to me i, I don't want to undersell that for a moment I, I can't imagine what what your version of normal now is it just it's it's unreal and i know you're getting emotional but i, I do want to ask one more question and it's yeah. probably an emotional one what do, okay. what do your kids know about their dad? Oh, you know what? That's okay. That's not a, that oh, okay. thing you so bad. <laughs> yeah, because they um one thing that I really love about our little family unit is that we talk about Chris all the time, and we laugh, and we talk about the fact that he loves bacon, and that his favorite color is green, and um that he would have loved this song, or he did love this song, or he did this stuff, or this made me laugh, or what you just did reminds me of your dad, and we'll laugh and we'll smile, and so what they when they haven't seen the movie yet. They haven't read the book yet. And they will. There will be a time. But one thing that when Chris was alive, we tried, I think, really hard to do is just for them to know him as dad. That's it. None of that other stuff mattered. And so the, the tickle fights, the Nerf gun wars, the, um, the way that his 
spirit is still around for us. I mean, it's different for for all of us at different times. I mean, there are still times where I just, you know, just times where I just something will happen or I'll hear a song or something will happen and I'll just cry and they'll usually look at me because usually if it's out of the blue, I'll try to smile and wipe the tears and I'll be like, daddy and I'm like yeah yeah but it's okay right it's okay I just had a moment and and they're fine with that and I'm fine with that sometimes we talk about it but they I feel like they know their dad pretty darn well because he was a such a solid person in their life and he really was involved he was cuddly he was loving he was playful he was expected them to meet a certain standard and politeness and uh we have friends that like I said, the one friend from high school, we're super close with their family, so he still tells us stories about Chris that make my kids laugh. And um, So I feel like they know all the, the good stuff, and every once in a while I'll try to tell them something that's like, I mean, he didn't handle that well, but that's okay because I don't ever also want them to have this um, illusion that that any of us are perfect. Sure, that's fair, and that makes sense. I mean, that's, you know. But ultimately, hopefully all their kids see their dad is perfect, at least, you know, for the most part. Yeah, uh, and, as much as you can, right? Right. Like, that's the thing. I, I think that they, the good news for them is that they have so much good to draw off of, and they hear so many great stories, and we have so many great pictures of, I mean, I was, one another, I guess, blessing out of being afraid all the time that somebody's going to die is I took so many pictures of just everyday life that, you know, they have a ton of that stuff that they can draw from of him cuddling with them, playing with them, doing stuff with them. So, yeah, I think, and their, you know, their rooms are covered in them. Not covered in them, that's not true. They, we have a um, sort of a big photo collage in each one of their rooms that took me years. I, I only, I was only ready to do it about six months ago, honestly, before that. It was, it just would break my heart anytime I'd see them. So I just kind of, um, kept them set aside. And I mean, if we had some, we had one wall in our house that we had a bunch of eight by 10 pictures of them and our dad or me. And we have a really big picture of them in a living room. And so I had some, but I just wasn't ready to dig through all the photos to find all the perfect moments for that collage in their room. And so when I went, we went through them all. And it was a little bit of a beating, but it was pretty beautiful too. Quickly, uh, the book, American Wife, Love, War, Faith, and Renewal. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's your memoir. Uh, Why'd you decide to write it? Yeah, just quickly, is the quick version of that one is that I wasn't ready at the time. The the movie was coming out, and the publisher thought it was a good time, and Jim DeFelice, who wrote American Sniper with us, he said, hey, all you have to do is talk, and Chris and I were already pretty close to him from doing American Sniper. He said, you talk, I'll write, and we'll get it out. And I don't know if I talked. I think I just emotionally vomited on him for months, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, he's a genius that kind of put it all into book form and then got it out there. So it was really, there were more wives that wanted to know that they weren't alone, I think, and there were more people that wanted to understand the family dynamic. And then, selfishly, I wanted more people to see more of Chris, a different side of him than just the warrior. Well, they can also learn more about uh, your foundation, Chris Kyle Frog Foundation, uh, and they can donate there as well if they'd like to help out. I would like to tell you, thank you so much for the time you've spent with us. Your grace, uh, your courage, everything about you just resonates in everything I've heard from you. And I know that normal again is never the same for you and and it never will be and i respect that and i certainly thank you for your sacrifice Uh, and i know everybody listening thanks you for your sacrifice and and just may god continue to bless you along the way uh i i 
my heart breaks that that Chris won't be around to experience a lot of the things that you know AK normal families have. But I know you're doing everything possible to keep his memory alive, and and I know your kids are representing him well every day as you are. And just thank you so much. I can't express it enough. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate your service and your family. I know what they went through and your mom, and um, I appreciate your listeners too and what you're doing with your podcast. I mean, you're. I think there's a hunger for people who want to know about this life, and you're doing an awesome job to bring that to them and help people remember why we're patriotic and who the people fighting for us are. So thank you for what you're doing, too. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.